Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When American and European sanctions on Russia were announced at the end of February and implemented through early March, the ruble's value collapsed. There were serious discussions about a spiraling disaster as the sanctions took hold and began to disrupt the Russian economy. Now, if you look at the charts, the ruble's value is clawed back towards its pre-war level. The war continues. So today we take stock with three experts. How has the implementation of the sanctions gone? Are they working, at least by some definition? And do the US, European, and other world governments need to do more? Stay tuned for the show, coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This past week, as Russian forces have pulled back from the towns outside Kyiv, new shocking images of the horrors of the war have been broadcast around the world. While American and European nations are sending arms and financial support to Ukraine, their main attacks on Russia itself are economic. These sanctions are unprecedented in their scope and the speed in which they've been implemented. They freeze assets of Russia's central bank. They ban exports of certain goods to Russia. They ban Russian flights. The sanctions have tried to target the country's politicians and elite, leading to a spate of yacht seizures. These are measures aimed at making Russia a pariah state. But sanctions historically have landed hardest on everyday people. With the war continuing, these are the questions I really find myself asking. What are the sanctions accomplishing? Will these sanctions target at Russian elites change Vladimir Putin's actions? And what should we expect from this financial pressure overall? Joining me to discuss the implementation and effectiveness of the sanctions, we're joined by a great panel, beginning with Justina Gadzowska, Director of Illicit Finance Policy at The Century. She also served as an expert to the UN team monitoring sanctions on ISIS and the Taliban and served in the Obama administration working on sanctions. Welcome, Justina. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for coming. We're also joined by Ian Talley, illicit finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me as well. And we also have Juan uh, Zarate. Is it Zarate or Zarate? Zarate. 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 There we go. Juan Zarate. Like karate. Got it. Um, Global managing partner and chief strategy officer at K2 Integrity. Zarate serves as the deputy assistant to the president and the deputy national security advisor 
during the Bush administration. Welcome, Juan. Thank you for having me. Ian Tyler, let's start with you. You know, when we first started hearing about these sanctions, you know, everyone said, well, it'll take a little while to get them in place. Where where are we with the implementation of the sanctions? So I think we can divide them up roughly into three groups. There are the financial sanctions uh, targeting the financial system, the banking system. They've hit about 80 percent of the uh, uh, Russia's banking assets, closed uh, banks shut them off of uh, several of them off of the international financial architecture and hit the central bank, uh, its foreign currency reserves. Uh, then if you look at the export controls uh, that uh, the Western allies are applying, it is affecting, uh, besides the military industrial com- complex, uh, the technology that Russia needs to grow its economy. And third, the third tranche are the uh, Russian government officials and oligarchs who uh, collectively make up uh, uh, Moscow's uh, 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 political structure. That, that's where we are right now. We're kind of at an impasse at, at present between the U.S. and Europe as to where to next. What hasn't been targeted specifically are Russia's biggest exports, uh, most important exports of oil and natural gas. Europe, of course, relies on that. The globe, global economy relies on the oil. And so those have been held off as a, um, a, a larger weapon to use against, uh, an ultimate weapon to use against uh, Russia. Yeah. Juan Zarati, this really is the the bear in the room, right? These energy, these in particular fossil fuel exports. Can this sanctions regime be effective or accomplish its goals without including the the energy sector? You're right. And Ian uh, did a nice job of giving the taxonomy of the sanctions in place. I, I think oil and gas exemption, if you will, is the, the gaping hole in the sanctions regime internationally. And it's not just because uh, Europe hasn't uh, banned imports of oil and gas. You have uh, the financial system that's attached to oil and the oil and gas sector uh, in some ways untouched as well. So you talk about the unplugging of the financial system and Russian banks, for example, from the SWIFT bank messaging system. Um, two of the major uh, Russian banks remain on the SWIFT system, Spurbank mm-hmm. and Gazprom Bank. And part of the reason is to facilitate oil and gas trade. And so uh, it remains a, a major gap. Uh, it's you know close to fifty percent of Russian government uh, revenue, um, and so you know it's a, it's a it's a great question. It's a fundamental one because ultimately Russia can backstop itself uh, with revenue from the oil and gas sector. Can remain connected to the international financial commercial system through those sinews. And it becomes very hard to choke off the Russian economy completely if you have this gaping hole. Um, I think it raises a separate question, Alexis, around what we want the sanctions to achieve, because the weight of our response, the the West response to the invasion of Ukraine has been put on the shoulders of sanctions. Sanctions are not a silver bullet. They're not going to turn back the tanks immediately, but they can impose enormous costs on an economy. Uh, and affect its long-term trajectory. That certainly, I think, the sanctions can do, even absent the oil and gas um, uh, you know, uh, sanctions mm-hmm. in place. 
And I do think the Russian economy is already weaker. The ruble is already weaker, despite the, the, you know, the current valuation. Um, and long term, Russia is going to have a, a harder time doing business around the world. And I think that obviously makes the Russian regime weaker. Whether or not that ultimately affects Putin's mindset and calculus with respect to Ukraine, that's a different question. Yeah. Justina Gatsowska, uh, I'm curious, you know, you've done a lot of work in less high profile sanction situations, you know, smaller countries and um, other types of, of pressure campaigns, you know, we've co- covered them. Are you what are you surprised surprised about in this particular situation? You know, is it the speed of it? Is it, you know, the dedication to the implementation like or is this kind of what you would expect in this situation? I was surprised really by how multilateral and swift the response was and how quickly the US was able to put together a very substantial coalition of countries covering a huge part of the global economy uh, to respond to this invasion. Um, And I think that makes very clear that this issue is uh, really black and white with so many countries joining this coalition. And many people think of this, uh, you know, response as a Western response, but it's very important to keep in mind that it's not just a Western response, that countries such as Japan, South Korea, and Singapore have also joined this coalition. And, you know, they are not usually at at the forefront of sanctions. So I think, you know, I did work on Iran um, while I was at the Treasury Department, and it just took years to achieve some of these goals, such Mm -hmm. as dropping Iran from SWIFT. And and here it happened uh, extremely quickly, and there was a lot of moral clarity about what was the right thing to do. You know, let's talk a little bit about some of the countries who haven't actually signed on, though, too, right? I mean, some of Russia's states that they work closely with in Africa, for example, haven't. How might the sanctions uh, end up affecting them? So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's it's been very unfortunate. And as, as you may know, the century really is focused on on Africa. And a lot of the countries we focus on are friendly with Russia and have not condemned uh, Russia. I think it's because one kleptocracy likes to work with another kleptocracy and Russia is really the, the world's biggest violent, corrupt regime and it has found friends in Africa that are also very corrupt regimes. And it has found friends that have natural resources. So we have seen Uh, Russia, through the mercenary Wagner Group, uh, operate in countries such as Central African Republic, uh, Sudan, uh, Mali more recently. And these countries are very rich in natural resources, uh, gold, diamonds, and others. And that could potentially help uh, Russia kind of backstop or evade sanctions in, in the long term. So it's very important not to forget about other countries um, over all over the world, including in Africa, that Russia has uh, really been courting in the past five years mm-hmm. or so. Yeah, China on one side and a lot of these other developing countries on the other. In tally, the public sees sanctions and companies withdrawing from Russia as kind of the same thing. What's, what's the actual relationship between this sort of government action and then these private companies pulling out? 
Yeah, I think it's a for for companies. It's always a uh, a risk reward assessment uh, with the the reward being profits, right? Um, and I think there is a high risk uh, for their name. I think it's it's re- usually called reputational risk of continuing to operate in Russia uh, that could affect their profits. Uh, it is the risk of their uh, uh, retaliation by the Russian government you saw in Venezuela uh, during the Chavez and Maduro regime, uh, the takeover of Western assets, a huge loss of of investment. Uh, I think you also see the the difficulty of just simply doing business. If you have 80% of the banking sector cut off uh, and the Russian central bank uh, unable to effectively defend the ruble, then you, it's also a business question about whether it's practical to continue to operate there. Uh, you may have noticed that one of the companies that was uh, targeted in the last round of sanctions by the U.S. is a company called Sovkonflup, and it uh, is a major energy distribution uh, company, uh, trains, ships, etc. And those ships are critical for delivering the oil and natural gas and liquid gas out of the country, and even internally. And if you can't do that, then uh, what's the point of operating? Uh, I think it, it is uh, does show the extent of the concern about uh, the uh, the conflict that uh, major Western companies would abandon decades of investment, multi-billion dollar projects. Uh, and I think that also speaks to what Justina was talking about was the the swiftness with which the there was a multilateral action developed uh, in you know showing how concerned they are about Russia. Yeah. We're talking about sanctions on Russia, what they are and how effective they've been with Ian Talley, illicit finance reporter with The Wall Street Journal, one Zarati, global co-managing partner and chief strategy officer at K2 Integrity, and Justina Godzowska, director of illicit finance policy at The Century. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about sanctions on Russia. We're joined by Justina Godzowska, Director of Illicit Finance Policy at The Century, also served as an expert to the UN team monitoring sanctions on ISIS and Taliban, served in the Obama administration, also working on sanctions. Ian Talley, Illicit Finance Reporter at The Wall Street Journal, and Juan Zarati, 
global co-managing partner and chief strategy officer at K2 Integrity, also served as the deputy assistant to the president and the deputy national security advisor during the Bush administration. We're curious about your, you and your family's experiences with sanctions. Do you have family in Russia? Uh, how are they being affected by these sanctions? Or have you lived in a country yourself that, that was subject to sanctions? And what was the experience like? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course. That's KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, uh, Ian Talley, coming back to you, you know, you've got illicit uh, finance in your job title, uh, and you've seen uh, different types of regimes try to evade sanctions and, and build these other kind of financial networks that allow them to conduct business around the world. How do you anticipate that Russia will try to work around these sanctions? Well, uh, Russia has been doing it uh, for quite a while, more on the uh, the private sector side. But uh, of course, I mean, Justina talked about the Wagner Group. Um, uh, they're, they, like other autocratic uh, corrupt regimes, have uh, have a great deal of experience evading um, the financial architecture that is meant to guard against uh, illicit activities uh, like sanction, sanctions evasion. So they have um, various means to do it. Shell companies, they have friendly banks uh, situated here and there. Uh, or they um, uh, countries that may help them um, uh, or turn the other way. The the question though is the orders of magnitude that's uh, different here. I mean, I- Iran certainly uh, is. Uh, if you read the journal, has been doing a very effective job of that evasion over the last uh, couple of years, uh, nearly uh, replacing all their lost uh, import and export uh, business over the last two years. Russia, though, was the 11th largest economy in the world. It was uh, a G20 economy. And to shift those those types of capital movements from one place to another illicitly can't go without being noticed. Plus the 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 net here, the uh, you're talking about more than sixty percent of the global economy that is on board with these sanctions, and so are going to be trying to uh, to keep an eye out for them. One raised the point about energy uh, transactions being allowed. You know that is not an, a way to evade, but it does undercut the sanctions, mm-hmm. the effect of the sanctions. And and finally, you know, there are a good number of countries that are anti-West that oppose the sanctions in general, and collectively their liquidity and trade accounts uh, will allow for some trade between them uh, without using the primary uh, financial system. Yeah. Juan, you know, uh, listener tweets, you know, Europe gets 40% of its natural gas from Russia. Germany has no liquefied national natural gas terminals. Without Russian oil and gas, Europe's economy, especially Germany's, crumbles. Russia holds the leverage. Seems like the U.S. slash E.U. didn't think this out. Do you think that is a, a, an accurate statement there? Yes and no. I, I think, you know, oil and gas has always been the sword and shield of sanctions for uh, Putin and, and Russia, and he's known it. That's uh, why he's wanted to deepen the dependencies in Europe for precisely this kind of moment. It's also why they built up their reserves. They bought up uh, 
a lot of gold. They did a lot of things to buffer against sanctions, which frankly have been um, rattling around and increasing even since 2008 with their invasion of Georgia and certainly after their presumed annexation of Crimea and invasion of Eastern Ukraine as well in 2014. And so um, there's been an attempt by the Russians to to buttress uh, themselves against potential Western isolation. That's been incomplete. But certainly what's also been incomplete is the effort by uh, North America and Europe and and the transatlantic relationship to wean um, Europe off of deep dependence on uh, Russian oil and gas. And this has been something I've written about for a long time, uh, talking about energy security being a fundamental part of national security. And frankly, the you know, the real revolution over the last 10 years with uh, the U.S. being a, a major producer and potential exporter of oil and gas. And that's what you see now. You see um, Germany even contemplating cutting off oil and gas. That debate is underway. Lithuania has already uh, pledged to do so. Uh, the United Kingdom has said they will do so by the end of the year. U.S. and Canada have obviously banned uh, imports of Russian oil and gas. And so this is all coming um, a little bit too late in the context of uh, the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the infrastructure isn't yet built up. Uh, and what you see is a, is a massive effort to try to uh, replace dependence on Russian oil and gas by sending new shipments uh, to, to Europe that were supposed to go elsewhere to try to backfill those supplies of oil and gas from places like the Middle East and even, even the U.S., yeah. Uh, but this is part of the, the broader economic and financial competition, if not conflict with Russia. And Putin has known that this is a major weapon for him. Uh, and that's in part what we're, we're, what we're dealing with now. And I think we're a little bit late to that game. Yeah. Well, and there's been that fascinating upheaval of German energy politics, particularly around nuclear power. Um, as people sort of recalibrate what the risks are there relative to these sort of uh, geopolitical risks. Yeah. And, and Alexis, you, you'll recall there was the debate around the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was built to trans, transport Russian gas uh, to Germany directly. Um, that was a subject of much transatlantic debate, uh, a subject of sanctions debate. Uh, uh, certainly the, the prior administration, the Trump administration, uh, was hawkish on trying to uh, shut down the, that pipeline. Uh, the, the Biden administration came in and was less so, uh, but there was much debate between the U.S. and Germany around uh, that pipeline. And of course, as soon as Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, the German Germans put that on ice. The U.S. sanctioned Nord Stream 2 and those uh, providing for it uh, and have in essence squeezed that new supply of Russian gas into Germany. Mm-hmm. Justina, uh, one of our listeners has a really interesting question here, um, and it goes it goes directly to some of your work. Uh, Kirsten asks, does the U.S. know where oligarch real estate wealth is held in America, and can the government seize them? What percentage of oligarch wealth is held here in America versus London or Paris? And I know this is kind of something you've been interested in, that like one of the ways that we can strengthen sanction implementation is to increase transparency in these other countries. Uh, 100%. uh, That's a very valid question. Um, I don't know how much oligarch wealth is in the US and I'm not sure anyone knows. And that's because it's just been too easy to hide wealth in the US. Uh, Same with with the UK. 
Um, but fortunately, there are some measures uh, in place that the Treasury Department is currently uh, working on, uh, transparency measures to eliminate uh, anonymous shell companies that are often used uh, to buy real estate. Um, and where the U.S. surprisingly, or maybe not unsurprisingly, has really been behind uh, is that it does not require real estate professionals uh, to have AML obligations other than anti-money laundering obligations to really check the source of the wealth that is being to buy real estate. And they don't have that obligation um, and that I'm hoping, and there are, Treasury is drafting rules uh, where that can change. So, so we know uh, when, you know, if you're buying a huge, uh, you know, apartment in New York City and spending $40 million, currently, if you do that in cash, nobody asks any questions. And that's, that's really shocking. Um, and that is also why no one knows how much oligarch wealth is in the U.S., uh, because they're bought through shell companies, they're bought through trusts, um, and there's just so much opacity. So if, Go ahead. How, how does that actually work? I mean, I, I, you know, I think in the abstract, I knew that was true that you could just plunk, you know, pull up a truck with forty million dollars, and and everyone would say, "Well, thank you very much for your business." Um, but like, how does that actually work? I mean, you've you've looked really closely into some of these circumstances, right? Yes, and, and there have been great reports uh, written about this, including uh, a report that uh, we published last year, the Century published, where a uh, Congolese, the brother of the former corrupt president, uh, was really able to go real estate shopping just outside Washington, D.C., uh, and no questions were asked because... Um, you know, he, he was using cash. He, he was able to have a bank account uh, through trusts that were set up. And because there was no mortgage, uh, and when you have a mortgage, a bank is involved and banks are obligated to ask questions because there was, you know, there wasn't this check. They were, you know, he was just able to go shopping right outside Washington, D.C. Uh, for real estate and no one asked any questions. So, when you don't have a bank involved and you have other professionals involved that do not have the anti-money laundering obligations that banks do, uh, this is what happens. So interesting. We're talking about sanctions on Russia, what they are, how effective they've been with Justina Godzowska, director of illicit finance policy at The Century, Ian Talley, illicit finance reporter with The Wall Street Journal, Juan Zarati, who's the global co-managing partner uh, and Chief Strategy Officer at Key2 Integrity, also the author of a very interesting book, if this is a topic you're interested in, called Treasury's War, The Unleashing of a New Era of Financial Warfare. We want to know what your questions are about sanctions in Russia. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Are there sanctions you think should have been implemented but ha- have not been yet? We've been talking about energy, but there's other uh, industries as well. Number is 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, I, Ian Talley, you know, U.S. and EU authorities, uh, you know, I've read in your stories, are saying that they'd like that the kind of phase we're in right now is like closing loopholes, tightening up implementation. You know, how realistic is it 
that they'll be able to do a lot more given all the countermeasures that can be taken, given all the other things that we've been discussing? If you're talking about pure, uh, purely closing loopholes, they can do a lot more. It's, uh, it's a matter of um, uh, enforcing the sanctions by targeting those who have been caught uh, helping others evade them and making, a, uh, making the penalty sufficient enough to, to, um, to get others to stop doing their, their business as well. But as we discussed, um, there are countries that um, turn a, a blind eye to such uh, uh, activities. And as Justini was talking about, and your questions uh, previously alluded to, there are, you know, they, money launderers have developed a, a, a great expertise uh, in evading sanctions. And, you know, there are numerous opportunities here. Um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to go into s- some of them. Yeah, go um, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Well, well, Justina talked about the cash uh, for real estate deals that can be applied to uh, investment, um, uh, to manage to, uh, funds. Um, the, she talked about trusts. That's still a, a major, huge loophole for uh, money launderers because there's anonymity within trusts. And that's why you see um, many uh, uh, bad actors moving towards trusts. And of course, if you're a country that uh, allows for um, companies to be set up without the owners being stated within the documents, then you can go from from that country, take your company to, um, say, South Dakota and set up a, a, a trust that uh, where you have anonymity behind anonymity and a lot of money. And that trust can buy then invest into all sorts of details. That's why you had Iran invested in a major uh, skyscraper in New York, even though it was supposed to be under sanctions. That's why you have, you know, several hundred billion dollars of Venezuelan corrupt oil moving through the, the U.S. financial system, that mm-hmm. there are ways to do it. And, and I think what this particular uh, event shows us is why uh, money laundering, allowing money laundering, turning the blind eye to money laundering, not uh, in, in instituting sufficient controls to stop money laundering within your institution, whether it's a bank or otherwise, has real national security uh, uh, consequences, whether it's in Iraq, Afghanistan, Venezuela, Iran, Russia, Europe, you name it. If, if that's happening, then it is facilitating those bad guys. And so you know, I, I, I could go on, but um, I, my colleagues have much more to offer, I'm sure. Yeah, let's let's bring in a caller who has some questions around this. Uh, Decker from San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. My question is, years ago, after Colonel Gaddafi died from Libya, there was a big uh, congressional inquiry as to how so much money from Libya had been invested into the U.S. What did we learn from that, and how does that affect the Russia sanctions? Mm. Such a good question. And I'm going to extend that just slightly, Decker, just to say, you know, the Panama Papers, too, this massive uh, expose of the way that a lot of this this banking system was was working. Justina, do you want to take a crack at that? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, with the Panama Papers, I think some of these amazing investigations can be partially credited with, you know, pushing uh, the U.S. to pass laws such as the Corporate Transparency Act and try to eliminate some of these uh, loopholes. Uh, unfortunately, not all jurisdictions are doing that. And, you know, as the saying goes, we're only 
uh, as strong as the weakest link. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they're, they're offshore jurisdictions, B- BVI. I think uh, what I'm reading now is a lot of uh, the money when it's going to be the dirty money that's uh, going to be closed out of London and the EU and the US, you know, perhaps migrating to the UAE and Turkey and other countries like that. So I think it's going to be very important to keep a close eye on that. Um, in terms of Libya, uh, yeah, it, it, it was shocking. Uh, I was there at Treasury after, you know, in 2011, when, when the Libya sanctions happened, and how much money the Libyan Investment Authority uh, ha- was able to, to stash uh, all around the world in the US and Europe and the UK. Uh, so I think uh, I, I'm happy to hear from maybe Juan if you have anything to add on that. But uh, I think clearly not enough lessons were learned. Yeah, yeah. Alexis, I'm ha- oh, happy to weigh in if you'd like me. To yeah, I'd love you to. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think one of the great lessons, not just from uh, Libya, but from Saddam Hussein's uh, period in Iraq. And I led the Treasury Department's effort to hunt his assets after uh, the U.S. went in. Um, the you know the lesson is you have a if you have a petro regime, a country that has oil and gas or other uh, raw materials or resources that the global markets want and need, um, that is going to provide safe passage uh, for flows of funds and for leaders to uh, to corrupt uh, both their own internal regime and others. Um, and that's certainly what we, we've seen historically over time with, with all of these regimes, including in Libya and now in Russia. And I think you know, the means by which they hide assets, where they put them, you know, all start to look similar, um, how they try to control particular sectors, particular, um, you know, um, assets is, is somewhat different depending on the, on the regime. And what's interesting about Libya, um, and to a certain extent Russia too, is um, these are regimes that are vulnerable to international sanctions when they are part of the international system, when they're opening up. And part of the reason uh, the work that the Treasury Department did when Justinia was there was so effective with Libya was we had a period of opening where uh, Libyan investments were welcome in, in the West, in London and ar- around the world, in Malta, et cetera. And so anytime you have those kinds of assets, those kinds of sovereign wealth funds, those are susceptible to uh, asset freezes and sanctions. We're going to be back with more on sanctions in Russia right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been talking about sanctions on Russia and the illicit financial networks that they may try to use to evade them. 
We're joined by Justina Godzowska, Director of Illicit Finance Policy at The Century, also served in a variety of positions inside the U.S. government. Ian Talley, Illicit Finance Reporter at The Wall Street Journal, and Juan Zarati, Global Co-Managing Partner and Chief Strategy Officer of K2 Integrity, also the author of Treasury's War, The Unleashing of a New Era of Financial Warfare, and who also spent time uh, in the government hunting assets among other things. Um, I wanted to just, one come to you on this basic structural problem, it feels like, in this sanctions regime, which is just that the EU countries are going to hurt more from these sanctions than the U.S. So if the war goes for a long time, how does that kind of basic problem, how, how can that be alleviated to kind of keep the unity of these sanctions together? It's a great question. I, I think there, you know there are three fundamental factors here that, that are at play with Russia. One is that it's a major economy and one that's tied you know, very neatly to Europe, in particular with oil and gas, as we've discussed. And that means that longer term, uh, that dependency has to be affected if we're anticipating a longer term confrontation with Russia or sustainability of sanctions that will last beyond uh, the next few weeks or months. And so the first point is that there's a huge dependency on a major global economy that is being unplugged from the financial and commercial system. And you have to then replace those dependencies in Europe. Secondly, you've got to find uh, the political will to sustain these assets, uh, these, these sanctions uh, to go after these assets. And the challenge here, of course, is that traditionally Europe has seen sanctions as reactive tools and very much tools of diplomacy to use as you know helpful off-ramps uh, for uh, situations like this or in the past with Crimea. Um, Europe has not necessarily been on board with long-term sustained sanctions of the type that the U.S. has driven for the last 20 years. And so there has to be, in, in many ways, a political mindset that allows for sustain, sustainable sanctions over the long term. And the third part of this is that, you know, this is probably not going to be the last moment of Russian uh, provocation or recalcitrance. In, in fact, if you look at the evolution of Russian sanctions over time, you know, they've been contained, they've been calibrated, they've been used to try to help, for example, with the Minsk agreement uh, to come to a diplomatic um, agreement. But the reality is, especially in the U.S. context, sanctions have been put on Russia more and more over time for a range of activities. The poisonings that Putin has done in places like London, the cyber attacks on our electoral system, uh, human rights abuses. Uh, the, you know, the Global Magnitsky Act was, was born out of um, going after corruption and human rights, uh, starting first in Russia, uh, and now obviously the atrocities in Ukraine. And so um, there's a whole range of things that the Russians are engaged in that are subject to sanctions and, and should be. Um, and Europe, I think, is just coming to grips with this. And I think this whole episode is an awakening for Europe, not only about the danger of Russia and their dependencies on Russia, but on the use of sanctions as a key tool of economic statecraft that they now have to wield and are wielding. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Joshua from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Uh, big fan, Alexis. I think you're doing a great job. With this oh, show. thanks. Um, my question is like a little bit back to Libya and a little bit about this guy talking about the strength of sanctioning. Um, and so I appreciate the uh, illicit finance experts we have. If, 
if, if I understand it right, there's like a on policy institutions, whether that's like states or country, you know, whatever the large bodies are, to like punish or give consequences to Russian money people, like people that have Russian assets, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what role does like people that invest money in property in America, specifically like California and New York, Right. Mm-hmm. These are like huge places for people to like invest at, like, you know, that's like a great return on your investment. So like, what are there any, is there anybody talking about like, Oh, how do we prevent that money from can, coming in? Yeah. yeah. Like when can I buy a house and it's not, you know, competing against like international Asset. Right, right, right. That's a that is a very interesting question, Joshua. The the very important local angle on this in some ways. Um, thank you so much for for that, Ian. I kind of wanted to go to to you on this. Are there subnational laws on the books that can stop or slow this kind of international money from being parked in? You know, local real estate markets in Manhattan or you know here in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, there are. Uh, there, well, I would say that there are federal laws, and now there, uh, there are the the Treasury is developing corporate transparency uh, requirements that the secretaries of state around the government uh, around the, the 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 U.S. will have to uh, comply with, uh, help provide that information for for a collective database that uh, law enforcement can then. Uh, access there, there. The Treasury does have uh, what's something something called geo uh, targeting uh, requirements that that uh, all cash deals in some high risk jurisdictions like Miami, um, uh, San Antonio, Austin, uh, L.A., etc. Uh, that any cash deals like that have to be the details have to re- be reported. There has to be some identification provided. Hmm. Uh, the there the the question is whether the local authorities and the local participants uh, can uh, do the type of uh, vigilant vetting that's required to really stop these issues. Uh, I, I think in some sense it, re- it requires, th- these sorts of activities um, require um, knowing participants uh, willfully ignorant uh, per- uh, participants, or some would say negligently ignorant, and then the, just the uh, uh, unfortunately just the inability, the lack of knowledge, the incompetence uh, of being able to to process the the vetting required to 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 check out uh, in many cases mastermind money launderers mm-hmm. that uh, are investing in in all sorts of places. I mean, y- y- there are many many um, used car companies and uh, vaping and tobacco shops throughout the U.S. and actually the rest of North America that are used as money laundering vehicles uh, for for uh, terrorist organizations. Uh, and so, you know, it, it goes down to the local level. Absolutely. You know, one one quick, I mean, boy, there's about seven things I want to follow up on what you said there. But to stay on the topic of this show, I just want to ask, how are those areas determined to be high risk for illicit money laundering kind of uh, investments? Well, I think one maybe uh, best uh, uh, 
able to answer this just because he sure. uh, uh, saw it. But uh, but I would think that part of it is the that you've seen examples of it already, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there are certain signals in the market itself. That's right. And, and Alexis, you know, the Treasury Department does uh, threat assessment, risk assessment with respect to these kinds of risks in the sectors that are vulnerable. And that's that helps inform this as well. I think it's worth taking a step back. You know, in the post 9-11 environment, uh, what you had was a broadening and deepening of the anti-money laundering system, which required more reporting, more record keeping um, an attempt at more transparency in the financial commercial system in the U.S. and globally for precisely the reasons Ian was describing before, a recognition that that had ties into national security. And frankly, we wanted to protect the financial system that, you know, the U.S. has, I think, been slow in parts, as, as Justinia was saying, on our corporate uh, registry requirement, for example, on a federal level, our uh, transparency on beneficial ownership that, that's been lacking. And it just goes to show where we are in real estate to your to your caller's question that in December of 2021, just a few months ago, uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network from the Treasury, which manages a, a lot of these money laundering issues for the government, put out a proposed rule to have record keeping and reporting requirements for residential and commercial real estate sectors. So to date, it's been simply reporting on these geographic targeting orders from title insurance companies but now you have the federal government trying to uh, look at and think about these kinds of requirements, the cash deals that you all were talking about earlier, to have reporting on them. And finally, I would just say, you know, there's so much more attention now to foreign investment in the U.S. You have the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. Uh, with an expansion of regulation recently that has gone to uh, looking more aggressively at foreign investment in uh, arenas that are of national security import to include real estate, but new technology sectors, um, uh, you know, sectors that are of import to the U.S. Uh, national economic security. That is now much more of an intense process led by the Treasury Department uh, and has gotten a lot more attention, including right where you sit, Alexis, where there's a lot of foreign investment in new tech uh, and in uh, capabilities in Silicon Valley. Let's squeeze in one last caller before I want to ask you all to think about if we need more or less sanctions. Uh, Greg from Woodside, welcome to the show. Good morning. I just want to ask, um, will there be reformations for um, the the war for the recurrent the Ukrainian people to rebuild their cities and also just for their financial losses that they incurred um, before the sanctions are lifted? That's a really good question, Greg. Thank you for that. Uh, Juan, I think maybe we would go to you on this. Sure. I, I think um, that is part of the discussion. And I think when you talk about trying to hunt down assets of the Russian state, uh, oligarchs, those individuals or entities that are on sanctions lists, I think one of the key questions is, what do you do with those assets? And in prior situations, prior regimes, uh, you've had an attempt to return assets to the people for the reconstruction of their country. I think what you're going to see here shortly is with the seizures of yachts and bank accounts and other things that are likely to come, um, the discussion around creating a fund uh, to help uh, with the, uh, the, the repair and the reconstruction of Ukraine. I think that will be part of the discussion. Yeah, yeah. 
So I want to read you a few different comments that have come in. Um, first, uh, David writes, just to, uh, a, a point of fact, BNP Paribas, a French bank, which is the parent company of Bank of the West, pled guilty to internationally violating sanctions against Sudan, Cuba, and Iran, paid a fine of almost $9 billion. Um, you can look that up on justice.gov. Also, Enrique says, today diesel fuel is six seventy nine a gallon in Oakland. Today, diesel is under $2 a gallon in Russia. Sanctions seem to be hurting me more than Russia. Another listener writes, Putin has said these sanctions are warfare. Is there a point that we can go too far? I do not support anything that Russia is doing, but should we be worried that the sanctions will give Putin a reason to use tactical nuclear weapons or broaden the scope of this war? Richard, on the other side of it, writes, more sanctions? Easy. Sanction every Russian bank, not just a few. Prohibit every import into Russia and every export from Russia. It's incredible this hasn't been done already. David writes, aren't these oligarchs so wealthy that even attacking their real estate or yachts will only make them smaller multi-billionaires? If I was an oligarch, I would just consider this a minor tax inconvenience. And finally, Noel tweets the big question. Do they work? How well did years of sanctions in Iraq work? It seems to me we impose sanctions in order to do something. So I want to come to you first, Justina, to just think about and, and answer us like, are these sanctions going to work? Are they working? And do we need to do more if we want them to uh, accomplish our goals? Um, So sanctions do work, but there are different goals of sanctions. And I think with these sanctions, uh, the Treasury Department um, has made quite clear that the goal is uh, to degrade the Russian economy over time so they do not have the resources to fuel their war machine and also degrade their ability to project power internationally basically to to bribe other countries to be on their side, right? So Russia has to make a choice. Do we invest in tanks or do we invest in our economy? So I think that's really the goal of the sanctions and they can work. Uh, They cannot work overnight. Um, And I think the other goal of the sanctions is to create leverage for negotiations, Um, bring Russia to the negotiating table and have something to uh, barter with Russia on. So it's it's really this leverage that the sanctions can uh, create as well. And right, we, you know, in the past, sanctions uh, have not been smart, I think, Uh, The Iraq sanctions are a prime example of that. Uh, They haven't been very uh, sharp tools. They've been very blunt instruments, uh, sanctioning an entire economy and really harming the people. So I think um, Treasury is really doing a good job. The U.S. government is doing a really good job in finding sectors of the economy where sanctions can have the biggest impact, looking at tech, looking at other sectors uh, that Russia cannot easily uh, replace on their own. Obviously, the oil and gas, a big X factor. I think, you know, the thing to do there is for Europe to just over time uh, reduce their dependence. It's not going to happen overnight again. Um, And then finally, I think we need to look at the potential spoilers of these sanctions. And, you know, it's one thing for China to say uh, we support Russia, but how far will Chinese businesses go in supporting Russia? Are they really willing uh, to cut off their relationships with 
uh, Western businesses, with the global financial sector, with global banks. Um, I think that is going to be really the wild card. How much are other countries willing to, to backfill uh, and help Russia evade sanctions when they really risk access um, to the global financial sector for themselves if they do that? Uh, so the short answer is I think they have been working in terms of their stated goals so far. Uh, there's more that can be done. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we should really not take our foot off the gas pedal uh, and keep our eyes on the prize. Ian Talley? Uh, yeah, so um, I would add also to that the message it sends to other countries. Uh, uh, you know, if you're China and you're looking to an expansionary foreign policy where you're flexing your muscles and want to challenge the U.S. as a global hegemon and you're looking to the South China Seas as one place to do it, um, this tells China, Beijing, uh, yes, we're connected to the global system, and so we're vulnerable to uh, being uh, to, to being hit uh, hard by sanctions. And you know, there's also the counterfactual: what have we not seen from Putin that he might have done or planned to do uh, if the sanctions hadn't been uh, um, uh, employed? Um, you know, and. You know, as Justina said, how long will this take? Juan was talking about the entry of the uh, Europe uh, in a way we hadn't seen. Well, they see this as uh, as an existential threat. And the more that uh, Putin talks about uh, a nuclear changing his nuclear posture, or you know, a, a mention of chemical biological warfare, the more that that existential threat increases for Europe, the more there is going to be political will to do the things, including the costs uh, necessary. Yeah. It's the weighing. The cost of of their you know their uh, d democracy in the West versus um, uh, having to pay higher energy prices. Yeah. Uh, so, so. Yeah. Thank you for that. We've been talking about sanctions on Russia, how they're implemented, and whether they're working. With Ian Talley, illicit finance reporter for Wall Street Journal. If you're interested in this, follow his work on a day-to-day -day basis. We've also been joined by Justina Godzowska, Director of Illicit Finance Policy at The Century. She's got a recent piece in Foreign Affairs magazine you should read called Can Sanctions Be Smart? And Juan Zarati, Global Co-Managing Partner at K2 Integrity, also the author of Treasury's War, The Unleashing of a New Era of Financial Warfare. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.